Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. In this episode, I am speaking with Michael Tesler and Christopher Mason. Michael, Christopher and their colleagues analyzed the same environmental DNA samples using two different methods, the 16S amplicon sequencing and shotgun sequencing. And then they compared the results, how many phyla and families they could extract using each method. And so in the podcast, we discuss their results and I try to understand and make sense of them. I also want to remind you about the conference Integrative Biology and Medicine that will take place in Kyiv, Ukraine in October. One of the speakers at the conference will be the famous evolutionary biologist Eugen Kunin. Eugen will talk about his idea of postmodern synthesis. So the modern synthesis is the uh, theory of evolutionary biology that was founded in the early 20th century by scientists like Ronald Fisher, J.B.S. Haldane, and Cyril Wright. That, of course, was long before we had DNA sequencing and genomics. So Eugen asks, in the light of this new information, how should we revise this theory, the modern synthesis? And should we have the postmodern synthesis? If you would like to meet Eugene Kunin and hear him talk about the evolution in the post-genomic era, then come to the conference. You'll find the link in the show notes. I'm here with Michael Tesler. Hello, Michael. Hey, how's it going, Rama? We also have Christopher Mason, although he's busy at the moment, but maybe he'll join us later. And so I wanted to talk to you about your paper, which is called Large-Scale Differences in Microbial Biodiversity Discovery Between 16S Amplicon and Shotgun Sequencing. But before we get to that, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you work and what is your uh, focus of your research. So, as you said, my name is Michael Tesler. I work on a variety of things, but most of my focus has been on systematics and biodiversity studies of understudied organisms. Um, I work at the American Museum of Natural History, or, or did until recently. I just graduated with my PhD. And uh, I've been working more recently on some of these microbial studies, and, and most recently on this study, this comparison of methods for next-generation sequencing studies of, of uh, microbiome and environmental DNA. Right. So what was the background behind this study? Um, what was the motivation? The background behind this was we had a prior study that we worked on that came out earlier in the year that was using the 454, the Amplicon 16S data, to look for very, the microbial diversity across major um, flood pulse lakes in the Amazon drainage, the Pantanal, the Araguaia, and the Paraná in Brazil. So a really wide range, South American sites, and see what the diversity was. And we did that, and we compared it to a number of other sites that, that other researchers had looked at from across the world. And we found that South America is pretty distinct. And that was that for that study. But we used about 
half the samples or a little bit less than half the samples we we'd done with the the amplicon sequencing but more and more people have switched to using shotgun sequencing for uncovering microbial diversity and you get this great advantage that you also get at some you know information about other groups of organisms as well so we figured hey this appears to be as good a method maybe even a better method it's easier to set up um less complicated and you get more out of your results so we wanted to do our additional samples so we went through and sequenced all of our samples including the ones we'd previously done with the 454 plus all the samples we hadn't gotten around to reviewing yet we figured hey we've got this data set with 454 and with uh, with the amplicon and we have it with the shotgun with the illumina why not compare it not that many studies have done this and that was really what we were just trying to do we have the data why not compare them right so what results were you expecting did you have any expectations yeah again i mean we we were hoping for the shotgun to be you know the uh, comparable or better we you know sunk a lot of effort into shotgun sequencing for these more remote sites because we were hoping that it would work you know particularly well and we weren't expecting a, you know, any major differences. And if, if we were expecting a major difference, it was towards the shotgun, you know, presumably mm-hmm. outperforming. Because once we actually started to look at comparative studies, which we have a, a large table that we present of, you know, the bulk of these other comparative studies that have been done, shotgun is pretty much exclusively equivalent or better than the Amplicon data sets. But that again is mostly for you know principally and for the largest studies human based although there are some soil studies and some other freshwater studies as well but we have particularly remote sites unusual systems so it's quite different right and and so what what did you discover we discovered that the shotgun data had about half of the phyla the phyla as the the amplicon. And that, that kind of is the, the easiest way to summarize it. Just a large set of organisms were not recovered using shotgun. There are also differences in abundance. The shotgun recovered in general a bit less evenness across the, the organism. So cyanobacteria, I believe I'd have to check that out in the figure, but I believe cyanobacteria in particular pops out um, as, you know, really yeah, cyanobacteria and proteobacteria really dominate the shotgun sequences in terms of abundance. And while that's similar in, um, at least for the cyanos, for the amplicon data set, it's much more even across the phyla, whereas the shotgun, again, just a few phyla dominating and far fewer phyla that were found overall. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a bit about how you analyze the data? Because... Uh, I think there are many different algorithms and methods to analyze both the uh, 16S amplicon data and the uh, metagenomic shotgun sequencing data. So could you go into a bit more detail uh, what methods you chose for this study and why you chose them in particular and how they work? And uh, by the way, we have uh, Christopher Mason with us. So I don't know... uh, who who's the better person to, to tackle this question? Yeah, so I, I'll jump in first, and Chris, feel free to add in. But 
We chose these methods basically because they're they're two of the most common systems that are used, one for Amplicon and one for Shotgun. Obviously, there are many different systems you could use for Shotgun, many different systems you could use for Amplicon, and we discussed that in the paper. And aside from them being common, there are a few advantages. So could you name them, by the way? Oh, yeah. So we use the RDP database and classifier for the Amplicon sequencing, and we used Metaflan 2 for the shotgun uh, data set. And so on top of just these being some of the you know most standard methods, the RDP has an impressively large database and has just been one of the go-to databases as well as green genes and silva, I, I believe. And then for the shotgun, one of the things we principally wanted to make sure was that it was a, a clade-based system or a system that relied on the core genome to alleviate facts or, or, or issues with, with genes that you may find in the genome of, of one uh, you know, organism that was sequenced, but may not necessarily be indicative of that phylum or that family or that genus or that species. So th- that was overall the reasoning. But obviously, there's a lot to explore in terms of, of different methods that could be used. Just to chime in, I think there's, uh, especially in metagenomics more recently, a, a pretty big explosion of methods for classifying both taxonomic identification present within a sample as well as biochemical activity or plasmid elements or even SNP identification for strain level identification of these samples. So we, we looked at, you know, Metaflame because it, I think, um, as Dr. Telser alluded to, it's very widely used, very commonly used. It was part of the Human Microbiome Project, so it's been uh, also pretty well benchmarked. But we have uh, another paper that's in, in press that's been looking at a variety of other tools, things like BLAST, Gotcha, Kraken, LMAT, Metaflow, or Clark, or NBC, uh, PhiloSift, a large number of other algorithms and others that we can see a really, really wide range, sometimes orders of magnitude difference in the number of taxa that are identified in a sample. So this is, I think, uh, you know, really big first step in the sense that it's the largest database of 16S and shotgun that's been put together, at least to our knowledge. Uh, but it really does raise the question of uh, the, the specificity of the tools that you're using and how that, you know, those algorithms become the lens through which you can see what's in your sample. So that paper in the words that you mentioned, it is also being applied to to the same data set. So it's basically a continuation of the study. Is that correct? In that case, uh, it was a comparison of really well-known and well-titrated samples. So in the, the, with these samples, we have mystery. We don't know uh, the total number of samples. Um, or to- in these samples, we don't know the total number of species present. So f- follow-up work is including one paper that's in press about well-titrated, well-characterized samples for which we know all the members and taxonomic identities of, the, of, thing, of organisms in the sample. And it's an ongoing effort, actually, with this data set to follow up with some of the same algorithms. So look at uh, more sensitive or more uh, specific type of algorithms that uh, change what is their ability to see things at lower or higher abundance. And so we uh, will do that next with this data set. And Roma, I, I, I think that's one of the other things we you know, highlight in that table that I mentioned where we review most of what's been found. And, and again, there are big differences and it's, it's hard with these more remote sites to, to benchmark them because like Chris mentioned, there's a lot less that's known. Whereas, you know, for human studies, for urban studies, for even just Northern hemisphere studies, there's a lot more knowledge out there and a lot more that can be done in terms of these, 
these benchmarking analyses to really get high levels of confidence for comparisons. But there is certainly a difference between remote sites and and well-known sites. And and that's one of the things that we're trying to highlight in this paper. Right. So going back to the algorithm. So for 16S uh, ribosomal RNA data, it's pretty much just the database, right? You can uh, consider like different algorithms to, to find your sequence in the database, but it's pretty much the database. Now with Shotgun, there is uh, more, uh, I guess, diversity among the methods, right? And Michael, you mentioned um, the core genome and the clay-based uh, classification. So could you elaborate what those concepts mean? Yeah, so uh, again, basically bacteria... There's a lot of swapping of genes, and because of that, there are a number of genes that, uh, that, that appear to be more central, more core to a given set of, a given group of bacteria or all of bacteria. And so if it's core to all of bacteria or most of bacteria, you might refer to it as the core genome, whereas if there's something that's consistent, at least for a given clade, such as a phylum, that could be a clade-based marker, which I, if I'm calling correctly is the way that um, Metaflan 2 works is with these clade-based markers. And so we've actually seen, you know, just to, to follow up on that, that thought, we have seen that different algorithms you know, do have different sensitivity, different specificity, depending a lot on you know, how they function. So this includes clade-based markers are often, uh, you know, basically these maps that include, you know, very specific taxonomic identifying sequences. So things like Metaflan or Phylosift or Gotcha. But other tools do things more alignment-based, like Blast, for example, or Diamond, Megan, or Metaflow. And then finally, there's other tools that use more KMER-based analysis with very short KMERs for their mapping. But using similar ideas, you want to look for taxonomically identifying uh, sequences or clade-specific markers uh, to address what's present in your sample. So the specific results that you found, you found uh, 20 phyla identified from the 16S data and only nine phyla identified from the shotgun sequencing data, right? So how do you explain that? How do you think about that? Well, there there are almost surely a few things going on, but um, like one of the things Chris mentioned, obviously there are different sensitivities depending on the algorithm you used. But there's also just uh, the fact of the matter that for some of the more obscure phyla, there are no genomes out there. There are no genomes in, um, in any of the genomic repositories or any of the commonly used ones. There aren't present in Metaflan. So if it doesn't exist, if nobody sequenced it before, if it's not in the database, you simply can't find it because it doesn't exist. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder to say what else is going on. That we're confident in. There are some things like if uh, we did uh, both species accumulation curves and rarefaction curves on the data set, and one of the things that that does appear to be the case is that um, to some degree, shotgun per site finds somewhat lower numbers. It doesn't. They don't all peak at the same number of phyla whereas you would expect them to potentially all get, you know, five of the phyla at least because they, they appear to, in the Amplicon data set, all of, all of the sites have at least 10 phyla, whereas, you know, shotgun, you know, they all have at least two phyla. 
So there, there's quite a big discrepancy there as well. So whether that's simply more database issues or whether that's some some problem with the algorithm or some problem with um, you know shotgun itself, that's a lot harder to tease apart. But but yeah, the database for sure is a is a clear clear cut and dry. We just need need to do more sequencing. Yeah, and, and one thing I'll follow up on is we we did confirm that the phyla that were present in the 16F database were also present in the Metaflan database. So we made it a, an apples to apples comparison as best as possible. But really, the the biggest limitation is just the fact that there are phyla in one database that aren't in another. Even when we tried to make sure that at least the ones that they could see, when we looked at the concordance that they that we only penalized something if it was present in the database, but it did not see it. Whereas we can't penalize. We, we don't know if something, uh, you know, what percentage of things could it not have seen that it didn't know exist because, well, they're unknown unknowns, really. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I think uh, regarding the main data, you say that out of 20 phyla that you found through 16S, I think only four of them are not present in your uh, whole genome data. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, so, something like that. Can't remember the exact numbers, but it, it's something like that. So like that leaves seven seven phyla sort of unexplained. But but one thing to note is that phylogenetically, phyla are gigantic. So let's say we say there's a, a, a genome that's recorded. That may be a single genome, or maybe there are 10 organisms with genomes that could represent a very tiny clade within that phylum, whereas you may have something that's completely disparate phylogenetically and that any program would have a very hard time picking up on that without that phylum level database really being you know having genomes from across across the phylum phylogenetically Ah, interesting but uh for for example for metaflan i thought that was the feature of metaflan that it sort of picks the right markers that correspond to those those taxa. So, for example, for this phylum, like depending on how div- diverse it is, right, it would pick different markers to correspond exactly to that clade. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, but how well something like a, f- uh, a clade-based marker is known if we don't have the genomes for other sections of that phylum even is, is kind of hard to say because, again, we don't have that information. Um, most of the bacterial diversity really is known from 16S and 16S alone. So we can't say, you know, for some really distinct far off thing, 100% that, you know, that would work um, as a clade-based marker. It's just our best, you know, effort moving forward. Chris might have a better idea on that. Yeah, I think the um, markers, I mean, the the biggest thing that we're seeing here is that, uh, you know, one of the biggest striking results is just that I think the assumption for a lot of people, you know, even myself included, has been that you would just discover more taxa when you do shotgun, which, uh, you know, in principle is true. You're sequencing more things that might be different, but you have nowhere to put them, right? So the complexity of the sample, uh, at least in terms of what we can measure, is in some cases actually, ironically, uh, lower with the shotgun sequence. And so it's, it's really the consequence of, of things not present in the database to compare it against. And so I think event over time, what's really, I mean, what's extra- exciting, I think, about the data sets is that over time, they'll become more and more informative. And so that eventually what we don't know is present in the sample today, we can take that exact same set of, of DNA sequences three or five or 10 years from now and continually extract more information about the complexity, 
and the biology and the species diversity of a sample as time goes on. Exactly. And I think even more than that, you're, again, because shotgun's not just targeting bacteria often, you can get information on a whole bunch of other organisms once, you know, the genomic databases for them increase. So there's just a lot of information that can be extracted. But again, you know, every year the databases get bigger, but clearly at least for, you know, this site, it it doesn't appear that the database, um, at least with the algorithms we use, is currently there yet. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're saying makes sense, but also, as you say, in principle, the shotgun approach should find more more file, right? And uh, like you could argue that if the database is poor or incomplete, the uh, numerical estimates will be off. But the fact that you know, and as you say, phyla are this large um, collection of organisms, right? And um, the fact that you know that something from that phyla is there, and the phyla is known by uh, the phylum is known by the uh, the database in the program, and the program just cannot find it there. Uh, this sounds like some kind of enigma to me. Sure, but I guess um, like if there was a human genome, and you were talking about you know core data, if you were talking about, you know, a a basal chordate, like a tunicate, Mm -hmm. um, presumably there are some major genomic shifts that are going on. But as far as the database goes, it's only going to know that, you know, genomically speaking, there's only a a human genome. So tunicate genome, which is quite distinct, isn't going to have a lot going on that's, that's matching it in certain regards. Right, right. Would you agree with that, Chris? Yeah, I, I think it seems, you know, like it is, uh, you know, co- like, you know, it seems, again, counterintuitive or it can seem even confusing, but it really is um, maybe the analogy would be the old allegory of someone looking for their lost car keys under the street lamp. And they're looking, you know, even though they've lost their keys you know, away from where the light is, someone says, well, why are you looking by the lamppost? And he says, well, this is the only place I have light where I can actually see anything. And so I think uh, computationally and scientifically, we can only illuminate those species that are present in the databases. And so, uh, which I think on the one hand is, is frustrating because you know you're missing things, but it's actually also very exciting because every time you go back to these data, you know, in future years, you'll be able to glean more from them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that quite answers your question. I have to hop off in a minute as well. Yeah, th- thank you for coming. It was great to have you. See you, Chris. All right. So, given these discrepancies, uh, how confident are you that the 16S results are closer to the truth than the shotgun sequencing, right? So uh, it it sounds like, like based on your explanation and Christopher's explanation, it sounds like there are valid reasons for 16S data to be uh, more precise, but there could be other unknown unknowns? Sure, there certainly could be unknown unknowns. Um, One of the advantages to 16S, again, at the moment at least, like we were saying, as the databases increase, there's more you can get out of the shotgun. But there's a lot you can do with species discovery with 16S because, again, well, that wasn't necessarily our goal. It's a comparable gene. It's been used a lot for species and larger, higher taxonomic finding so or discovery so if you have something that's comparable you should be able to compare it and find you know 
make OTUs something with a you know a percent cutoff or or some other you know objective way to compare it, and you can get from you know incredibly fine scale differentiation um, out to much larger def- differentiation for finding new things. So at this point, yeah, there's a there's a lot that can be done with 16S. There's a lot of flexibility in terms of pure biodiversity studies and you know discovery of novel OTUs, uh, operational taxonomic units, as well as just you know potentially again discovery of of more disparate groups, um, you know, potentially new, f- new families or other higher taxa. This is a whole other kind of worms, right? Because I think there is a lot of controversy around OTUs and ha- like what sort of threshold to pick for them. Whereas if you have a database, right, it's sort mm-hmm. of more scientific and you know that those are actually your taxa. Whereas for OTUs, yes. it's uh, a bit like uh, walking in the dark. Sure. And again, I, I don't mean to advocate for or against OTUs. More my point is that, well, we, I mean, in this study, we were only looking at really actually higher taxa. I mean, phyla and families are pretty coarse descriptions. As Chris was saying, with SNP calling and certain other things, you can get at potentially strain level differences or population level differences or whatever you want to call them. Um, so, so really, my, my point in mentioning OTUs was mostly that you can go from very fine scale where you can make a phylogenetic reconstruction and you can see how different, um, different organisms relate to each other that may be potentially even below what's been discovered. So there may be a species that's described for them that you, know, you could pick up on by RDP or another database. But if there's additional genetic structuring that you find. Again, it's a single gene. It's relatively easy to compare. People have been making comparisons across 16S or or other similar genes for a long time. Okay. But you also cite a lot of previous studies that find the opposite results, right? They find more diversity from shotgun sequencing. So um, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? We have a particularly remote site. Um, most of the work that's been done, as Chris mentioned, Metaflan, you know, it's most famously known to some degree from the Human Microbiome Project, which mm-hmm. is, was this amazing effort that was put forward. But it's humans. You know, we've been studying humans for a long time, and we have a lot of intention to keep studying them more intensely than, you know, more remote places like the Amazon. So... I think with science in general, often it started with the things that are closest to home. So humans, human-related environments, um, places that are near where you study. So maybe a forest or a lake near where you live. And then you start to go into more remote places. So I would say the remote aspect is is one of the principal aspects. And then another thing is that it's simply possible that, you know, given the database discrepancies, as we mentioned, there may be certain places where 16S outperforms shotgun and certain places where shotgun outperforms 16S, which again is this, this discrepancy that we're finding. Um, and so what I would take away from that personally is if you're going to do a large-scale sequencing project and you have the money, do a pilot study. Mm-hmm. It's just doing your due diligence. It's, you know, then you can actually compare it, just even a few samples 
of shotgun versus amplicon, and you can get a lot of information. If you don't have the money, if you're a smaller lab, I would say if you go to a more remote place or you're working with a more unusual set of organisms, go with 16S. If you're in a more human-based system or you're you know, closer to a place where a lot of genomic work has been done, shotgun is likely the better way to go. So it's really, it's system dependent. So where are you? Where do you live? Think critically. And, and if you have the ability, if you have the money and the time, test it out. And I think a lot of labs do test these things out. I just don't know that all of them report it. Because again, you know, a single sample on 16S versus um, uh, shotgun may be enough that a PI decides to go in a given direction with their study, but it may not be enough where they want to make a big fuss about it in a publication. Right. So suppose that you do this pilot study, what would make you to pick shotgun uh, over 16S? So from from your study, it seems like the number of phyla and, and the number of uh, families, I think, is much lower for shotgun versus 16S, right? So mm-hmm. let's suppose the ideal result is uh, the shotgun will uh, produce closer results to 16S, right? Or could it, could it be that it would produce even more, uh, like detect more phyla than 16S? Um, phyla, I, I don't think we're quite there yet at, in terms of phyla, but in terms of, you know, potentially species or strains, mm-hmm. yeah, potentially. Um, again, a lot's database dependent and a lot's dependent on what you can actually do. So if if you have a SNP caller, potentially there's more information that you could get from uh, shotgun data. Whereas if you're not using a program where you can do something like that, then, then presumably something more on the Amplicon, where, again, you have this single gene fragment. It's all comparable. You know, it's maybe not a huge fragment. Maybe it's only a few hundred base pairs. But, you know, you can get the information out of that, whatever is variable in that. Got it. Yeah. Um, so also in your paper, you talk about integrating the environmental data like temperature or, or pH. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah. Let me pull up those those figures so I can check them out. Uh, so this was one of the more interesting things. And I think we've gone back and forth kind of trying to interpret this in in a number of ways. So one of the things that we found Again, you know, we're actually interested in the ecology of these organisms. So we added in environmental data, which hasn't been done a lot. And this is probably the only part, or I believe the only part of the paper where shotgun at least has a higher number of something associated with it. <laughs> so if, if but higher is not always better. And in this case, it's really hard to interpret. So you get a higher number of environmental variables that correlate to this ordination space for the shotgun data. And you get far fewer environmental variables that correlate to the ordination space for the Amplicon data. And what is the ordination space? Uh, the ordination space, so this is, um, this is we use non-metric multidimensional scaling. And basically what it's doing is just comparing how similar given sites are based on the abundance of a given taxon that is found there. So for every site, you have a number of taxa, and they vary in, in whether they're presence or, ap- or absent, and they vary in terms of their actual abundance. So 
in terms of that, you compare one site to another and they push each other apart and sites that are more similar to each other in this type of ordination are more are closer together and sites that are you know don't share a lot of information in terms or a lot of organisms and the abundance of those organisms tend to be further separated so that's the ordination space and then on top of this you can correlate to the ordination space very in a in a simplistic sort of a way what the various environmental features are that relate to how these the separation of sites because you have a measurement for a given site, which is the pH. So if one side of the ordination has low pH and the other side of the ordination has high pH, you'll get a correlation and an arrow pointing in the direction of the high pH. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. You're saying that sites that are similar environmentally are also like more similar when considering the shotgun sequencing data, but are not that similar when considering the 16S data. Is that right? Not, not necessarily. So what I'm saying is that they're, to some degree, it's actually the opposite. To some degree, they're, they're more, almost more, it's hard to interpret, actually, because I think to some degree, yes, these sites are more similar. There are fewer taxa separating sites out. Like I said, the abundance is largely driven by a few higher taxa. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's kind of less going on um, presumably going into those data. And yet you get more environmental variables that correlate to basically every direction in this ordination space, which is pretty distinct. There's a, basically it says that the differentiation between sites at least correlates with a lot of environmental variables. And so it's hard to say whether a lot of environmental variables correlating is a good thing or a bad thing. And to some degree, you know, probably without doing experiments to get at what the truth is, you know, if you have a lot of cyanobacteria in a site, does, you know, the, the temperature change, you know, so if you have experimental data to go along with this, you can start to get at really what, you know, what might actually be driving these systems. But one of the interesting things that we found was, again, we looked at both the family level and the phylum level. So very coarse levels. Um, but, with the, I believe, and could be wrong. No, I'm, I believe this is correct. So at the family level for the Amplicon data, you find the fewest environmental correlates. And arguably, the environmental, or I mean the family level data for Amplicon is the most rich data set, right? It has the largest number of organisms, and it's relatively evenly spread across compared to the shotgun data, and, and presumably it, it works quite well. And yet you only have, uh, I believe, three different variables, two of which are both dissolved oxygen, just slightly differentiated. Um, so really two principal environmental correlates. Whereas if you back up and go to the phylum level for the amplicon, so again, this should be a coarser level. There, there are far few phyla, comparatively, and there's just less that can differentiate your site. So more is getting pinned less on the identity, but more on the abundance of things. And you start to get, um, I believe we have five different environmental correlates as opposed to really two principal environmental correlates. So which one is better is hard to say, but again, with the, the richer the data set is, at least in my opinion, which would be Amplicon and family level 
would be the most rich, you get the fewest environmental correlates. Whereas, again, if you back up, which is a bit less information for the amplicon at the phylum level, you find that there are more environmental correlates. And then if you back up even further, which would be basically the whole shotgun data set, you get a whole bunch of environmental correlates. So the pattern that I see, which again, there's a lot that could be tested or potentially done with simulated data sets on something like this to really get at, at what's underlying this. The, the more coarse your data set is, the more environmental correlates, which I would personally say is, is not what you're shooting for. You, you really want, you know, I would trust personally the Amplicon family level data set the most for this type of analysis, and you get the fewest environmental correlates, which is, you know, kind of counterintuitive, at least to me when I first saw the result. So you're saying that these environment correlates, they're more like technical artifacts? That's what I believe. That's my personal suspicion. Mm -hmm. But again, without testing that, that, that can be hard to say. So this one, I, I think, is, if anything, the result that is most up in the air about, you know, which system is better? I, I don't know. You know, there it, it could be easily argued that, you know, a data set that reveals more correlation to the environment is a more robust data set. So somebody could argue for the shotgun being more informative in this case. And again, without, you know, simulating to see if there are artifacts in the data or testing in an actual environmental sense to see how cyanobacteria or some other phylum reacts to turbidity, you know, it's hard to say where the, you know, which one is more factual or more representative hopefully reality. Yeah, yeah. So, Michael, you have now two papers, right? Uh, I mean, obviously you have much more papers, but like two that I'm familiar with. One is from the last year yes. where you were mainly interested in the um, biological side of things. So you were actually interested mm -hmm. in uh, what sort of microorganisms live in these floodplains. And this one is more about the methods and the protocols. Mm -hmm. Which direction do you like more and which direction are you going to, to pursue next? Um, I, I think I tend to be more of a generalist than a lot of scientists. And that's kind of what's getting me most excited when I wake up that day. <laughs> Which, So if, you know, this project was a lot of fun for me because once you started to see the results emerge, it was, hey, this wasn't what we expect hey, this is quite different than what everybody else is reporting. And then you start to think about it in terms of databases and kind of go, duh, this is, yeah, something you might expect, but nobody's really talking about. Maybe they think it. And, and I think some of the criticism that the paper has gotten so far has been um, really people saying, duh, two different methods, you get different things. Mm -hmm. One works better, uh, you know, database size is not as good in, in more remote places. And that was kind of our point. So while it was meant to be a criticism, it was actually kind of exactly what I wanted to hear. Duh, this is what you'd expect to find. So for me personally, that was exciting about this project and really got me revved up about it. Whereas that last microbial study, it was just fun. You know, with these environmental DNA data sets and microbial data sets, you're able to quickly and efficiently address questions that such a rapid pace that, you know, even a few years ago, you, you couldn't ask these questions. 
um, to the degree that you can today. And I think that labs all over the world now are, are adopting these methods and being able to ask fundamental environmental questions that that the databases are, are I mean, the, the data sets that you generate are enormous. Whereas prior ecological work that I've done, um, you know, you go out and you measure stuff and you have to be an expert on the group and you have to know how to ID everything. And, you know, you might be, I, I did some work with rock climbing where we're looking at the environmental, potential environmental impact that that had on the various plants that lived on, on boulders from rock climbing. Yeah, you have very cool photos on your website. Uh, I will link to it. <laughs> Thank you. But I spent a lot of time hanging on ropes and just, you know, recording what was on a, I, I forget what the exact size, but maybe it was a half meter by half meter plot doing four of those per boulder. And that took an entire summer to, you know, with several people working with me to be able to get at something like 25 paired sites. So in terms actually measuring 50 sites, but 25 pairs. Whereas here, you know, with just scooping out some water and filtering it, you can sequence and find treasure troves of information, which is just spectacular. So if anything, it's, it's the, the speed at which you can get information that most excites me about this type of direction and this type of study. So I think overall for me, just environmental DNA is a direction that I very much would like to pursue because it's endlessly fun. You can just, you can ask it a question in your apartment, you know, <laughs> you can ask a question anywhere, you know, go to your local lake and there's just, you know, it's a great way to, to discover things that have been in front of your eyes all along. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of that, I have a friend here in Ukraine and she goes, she also studies the marine microbiome, but she does that mm -hmm. deep in the sea. So they actually go mm -hmm. on, on a ship far into the sea and, and they uh, look so deep that you have like no hope going there yourself, but they actually put some kind of device <laughs> yeah. deep there and they can see what lives there. Yeah, yeah. Mercer, um, the one of the senior authors on this paper, Mercer Brugler, he actually is principally a deep sea biologist. He actually studies uh, black corals. So he's he's one of the few people who's done deep sea dives and and himself personally and done really deep sea remote controlled um, exploration of, of, you know, just these impressively deep areas. And yeah, there's a lot to be discovered there um, in terms of pretty much everything. And I, and I think there's a lot to be worked out in terms of, you know, doing this in type of environmental DNA studies for those types of environments. So how long does it take something from a higher layer in the ocean to get down to the you know, part of the ocean that you're studying and, you know, are you going to be picking up on that DNA or has it degraded completely by the time it gets down to you? And mm. so there's a lot of fun stuff and I, I'm sure your friend's going to have a lot of, a lot of interesting discoveries. So we'll be wrapping up. Is there anything you would like to talk about that we haven't covered yet? I think that that just about sums it up. Um, again, I think just people should think about their system. And I think most people do. You know, I, I do think that a lot of people working in more remote systems are using 16S and a lot of people working in more human-based or urban-based systems are are working on mm. 
on shotgun data sets. But be aware of the data sets, be aware of the databases, and as they grow in the future, I mean, I think like Chris said, I look forward to seeing what happens with something like a shotgun data set from 2015, how it looks in in 2020. I think we're going to be able to glean a lot more information out of them and just simply reanalyzing things once the data sets get better where there's going to be a lot of information. But until then, you know, be careful, do pilot studies, or at least consider you know, what system you're working in and what organisms you're working on. And, you know, I think a lot of people are already doing that. But to those who are new in the field, you know, check this study out, check out the other studies that we, that we reference who do similar comparative work and see what they find. Yeah. Do you have any samples saved for 2020? <laughs> well, that's the thing is these, you know, the, the, the samples from this study and all other study, they go up onto GenBank. So, the sequencing is high quality. It's the database that's going to improve. Ah, so got it. Yeah. The sequences that are in GenBank from a you know the human microbiome project, you know, presumably we have a lot more information about that. But um, you know, a study that was done on a, a lake somewhere, you know, such as this, where we were looking at this large diversity of South American uh, biodiversity hotspot lakes, if you go back to GenBank five years from now, you download this or you download another study, you download Chris's study where he, he looked across the subways in New York City. My guess is you're just going to find more and more information. If you did this every year, you're going to find that there's more interesting results or more accurate results you're going to find with, with the shotgun. But until then, you know, be cautious. Well, Michael, it was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you as well.